Thank you, Christina. Uh, an important issue and um, uh, one that, um, that is at the heart of um, uh, many in our church, those who are committed to being a voice on those who are exploited on behalf of those who cannot speak out for themselves. And uh, a w- small way in which we can have an impact is uh, to speak out about what we believe uh, as Christians concerning that particular situation. So I hope you take that to heart and take some time uh, to, uh, to read and understand what exactly is being proposed and um, let your voice be heard. Uh, I would like to invite you to stand with me as I read from the Word of God. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to read from verse 14 to 17. And then I'll have you flip the page in your Bible to chapter 11, reading from 27 to 34. If you don't have your Bible with, uh, with you this morning, it is also on the screen behind me. Uh, this is the Word of the Lord. This is Paul's words to the Corinthian church. Uh, and this is what it said, beginning in chapter 10, reading from verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. And then in chapter 11, verses 27 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Let us pray. Father, this morning we invite your Spirit, already present, to minister to our hearts and to our minds, to speak to us in a way that we are convinced it is your Word. I pray this morning that through the thoughts and the meditations that you have given to me, your Word would come forth with clarity, that you would renew within us an understanding of who Jesus is, that you would help us in our Christian walk to grow, to develop, to become more and more the kinds of people that you desire us to be. I pray above all things that we would recognize you are present with us here. It is you who offer yourself to us. You desire to be with your people. You desire to be with me, with us. You desire fellowship. You desire communion. I pray that you would revitalize within our hearts the understanding of the table. That it would be more than just tradition. More than just something we do at the end of a service. But in fact, your grace, your presence made available to us. I pray this 
in Jesus' name, and all God's people says, Amen. You may be seated. In the series based upon the Lord's Supper, started last week by Pastor Jeff, we are attempting to maybe bring a a deeper understanding for some or a renewed perspective for others about why we as a church embrace two specific sacraments. The two sacraments of the Protestant church in general are that of the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Lord's Table, the Eucharist in other traditions as it's referred to, and that of baptism. Baptism is considered to be an initiating sacrament. It is a sacrament that we will participate in on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, whereby those who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord will be baptized here in this community into such confession and into such a body as this. And if you are not yet baptized, it is going to be one of the most exciting baptism services that we can possibly create because we want to thank God for those who become a part of this family please consider being baptized. How's that for a plug? But Holy Communion as a second sacrament is something that I grew up maybe not quite understanding what it meant. In fact, this morning you will probably find that you are challenged in your own perspective to consider deeply the implications of what the Lord's table means. We have devoted seven weeks to preaching on this. And you would say, maybe in your mind, you're asking the question, how can you speak on the Lord's Supper for seven weeks? Well, the answer is quite simply, there is much to say. And there is much to be invited in. And I pray this morning that through the simple thoughts that God has given me, He would enliven us to His presence, which I believe is at the heart of this particular sacrament. This morning we believe as a community of faith that in His physical absence, Jesus is present here with us. Early in the Corinthian letter, uh, the Apostle Paul makes aware concerning a matter of discipline within the community that the believers must recognize that when they behave or when they act, they must know that Jesus is present with them by His Spirit. We do not believe that such presence is transformed into material subjects like the cup and the juice in our tradition. We do not believe that these actual elements in any ways becomes the actual material flesh body of Christ. But we do believe this along with all who confess Jesus as Lord in our tradition and in the evangelical church. That Christ is the one who hosts us at this table. That he is present by his spirit with us. This presence is assured to us through Jesus who says that I will leave you, but I will not leave you without my spirit. I will always be with you until the end of the age. Now you would say this morning, Stu, I don't know if I actually feel that when I take communion, Jesus is there. Because I do not think Jesus looks like you. And I do not necessarily feel any particular warm fuzzies that there is a divine presence when I drink of the cup and eat of the, not the bread, what do we have? Little wafer things. I don't even know what we call them. Crackers. There we go. You, you may say, I, I, I don't know if this presence is true or real. Uh, let me put it to you this way. The only way in which that presence becomes personal to you and me is through what scripture says is our faith and trust in that which has been promised. 
So to participate in this table requires an act of faith. It requires a belief in God. It requires a leap into that which is not visibly uh, tangible or seen, but it requires nonetheless a deep conviction that says, when I come to this table, I come receiving from him who died in my place and is in fact present with us today. Isn't it good to know that the presence of God is not contingent upon my emotional being? Isn't it good to know that the presence of God is not contingent upon what I am going through? Is it not good to know that God has promised through Christ himself that he will be with us, his disciples, until the end of the age? It is important this morning that you recognize that he is with you, not only at the table, but in every part of your journey, in every part of your life. Do you know that Christ is with you? Thank you. This morning as we come to the table, I want us to think of it in a particular way. Last week, Jeff reflected on the idea of remembering as one way to enter into the table, the Lord's Supper. Of of course, Scripture teaches us that forgetting is dangerous. Uh, We understand that forgetting is dangerous for various reasons, but in Scripture in particular, the nation of Israel is a prime example that God would do something great in their life, something momentous in their life, like part a sea and and, and make water come out of a rock and and heal and restore and, and do all kinds of things. And then literally within days, if not weeks, we find these men and this woman forgetting how God has acted and serving other gods. We understand that remembering is important for you and me in our daily life because every day we live in this world, we are tempted to believe that which is contrary to what God has called us to believe. I I think that the reason Jesus says, eat this meal often, as often as you get together, is because he understands how easily we are thrown off that which is true, how easily we forget that which has true meaning and brings true life. And we are called to remember on a consistent basis so as to enlighten us, redirect us, align our life again with the purposes of God. Some One person last week when Jeff preached, he said this to me afterwards. I said, how did it go? You know, was so-and-so grumpy again or were they smiling? Uh, did anybody heckle you while you were preaching? That's how we do our staff meetings. And he said the left side of the church was really morbid this past Sunday, and the, the right side seemed really joyous. Um, we actually do talk about you, not like that, though. Uh, but one of the things he, he pointed out was that someone came up to him afterwards and said, and said, so, <laughs> so we're going to do this every week till Easter. We must really be sinful people. But I think that the intention of serving this every week up until Easter is rooted in the conviction that we would like our community of faith to be shaped by Jesus. We would like our our, our faith to be deep. We would like to grow. We would like to develop. We would like to put back the meaning that maybe has been lost in this very important sacrament. And so this morning, I have three proposals from the text. They are quite simple, but I think quite important. The first is simply this, that there is a great hope when we come to the table. And the hope is contained in the following way. 
Most theologians, most historians, and most of us who have read Scripture here this morning would quickly sense and know that when you read through the Gospels, Jesus loved eating with his disciples. There is numerous occasions, time upon time, when you see Jesus entering a home, where you hear of Jesus interacting around a table, when you see Jesus making use of opportunities for table fellowship and hospitality. Do you know that the last, one of the last things he did before his crucifixion was share a meal with his disciples? Do you know what the first thing is he did after his death and his resurrection? Is he shared in a meal with his disciples? The point is simple yet profound, and profound for me in the following way, that I don't always live my Christian life, in particular when it comes to the sacrament, with the conviction that Jesus loves being with me. That this table communicates a hope and a promise That when we come to this table, we are believing that Jesus Christ desires to be with his disciples. That he wants to share in fellowship with us. That he wants us to be close to him. This past Friday, uh, Ruthanne, on Thursday, I think, contacted me and said, our our former neighbors, um, uh, you know, they they called her and, and said, would you come over and have dinner with us? And we're going to have your other former neighbors there as well. And, and I wasn't sure whether this was an intervention or, or what, what they were planning. Uh, but she said, uh, are we free to go? And I said, uh, you guys are pretty stoic this morning, eh, by the way. Just lighten up a little bit. Uh, so anyway, uh, so I said, yeah, sure, let's go. Uh, you know, we'll go. Of course, I got home. And when I got home, uh, you know... The, don't sit on the couch or lay on the bed, right? Like, you know, after a day. And, and everything from the day just kind of in the week just kind of filtered through my body and I, I fell asleep. And when she woke me, she said, it's time to go. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be very confessional. I said, is it too late for us to get out of this? And uh, my wife being, she said, you know, my wife being, she says, she says no, we're going. We, got, we can't cancel now. We got to go. Uh, all that to say, we ended up at their home. We sat around the table with, with our friends, our neighbors, uh, and, and, and we had a great meal. And, and, and I felt so rejuvenated, you know, at the table and just enjoyed talking and laughing together and speaking together and we're eating and drinking and chatting and all those kinds of things. And then we moved from there to the living room. And then this thought came into my mind as I was sitting there. I actually enjoy being with these people. It kind of just dawned on me. I like this. They couldn't be more different to who I am. They don't, they don't share the same perspectives of life that I do. They, they, they come from a different country. But, but I loved being with them. And then it dawned on me as I was working on this particular text that the simplicity of the text infers, based upon who Jesus is, that he too really enjoys eating with his children. He loves being with us. He enjoys being in our presence. He welcomes us to his table. Now the degree to which you believe that that is the Christ of the table would be the degree to which this sacrament finds a significant and hence life transforming function in you and me. Do you believe 
that Christ loves being with you. Do you believe that He actually enjoys your company? Now, when I was raised, you know, we put a, a great emphasis, or as a comedian said, emphasis on the wrong syllable. Um, we placed such a great emphasis on all the reasons why we could not partake and should not come, that this table by and large has been defined as a table of judgment. Now, if you followed closely, you would see that the scriptural text teaches us that those who partake without examining their hearts and discerning the body are those who run the risk of bringing judgment upon themselves. And I will clarify what that is in just a moment. But let me just restate what I've just said over the last several minutes. That this table is a table of grace. The host is Jesus Christ. And He says, I love to eat with those who are mine. When you come this morning, when I come this morning, we come as those loved by Christ. It is important that you recognize that the hope and the promise of communion is that, in fact, at this table, we share in the life and the fellowship with the living God. But it is not only a promise about presence of Christ with us. It is also a hope and a promise that we would have the right relationships with one another. You see, the hope and the promise of communion is not only that we meet Christ who loves us and desires to be in our presence, but the Lord's table is also a table in which the body must be discerned and right relationships must be a part of the process. Let me put it a different way. In verse 16 it says, those who participate, participate in the blood of Christ. He sacrificed what He's done. We are Christians because we have confessed our sins, we have died to our old way of life, and we have been incorporated into new life, and they must also participate in the body of Christ. Dual meaning, body, his body, but body also the community. This is how it goes. You cannot participate meaningfully without judgment in the Lord's table unless the relationship with God and the relationship with others are examined and found under the grace of God. It is important that you and I understand when we talk about communion with God, it is never without participation in the life of the body of Christ, the church. In other words, to participate without bringing judgment upon ourselves actually implies this, that we must seek to live in reconciliation with one another in our earthly human relationships. The vertical relationship, critical and important. Many can say and bring sacrifices, as the New Testament teaches us, to the altar. But Jesus says, what are you doing? You cannot worship me and still live irreconciled with your fellow man. That the hope of this table is not only that we would be drawn closer to Jesus, that we would be in his presence, but the hope of this table is that we would be reconciled as the body of Christ. You know what the scripture says? We all become one because we partake of the one. We all become his body as we participate in the sacrament. We are all brought together as the body of Christ. 
I think it's important that you understand that the hope of communion is not simply to strengthen our faith, which is important in Jesus. It is not simply to enjoy His presence at the table. It is also to examine and look at the relationships around us. In fact, the hope is is that through the Lord's Supper and not through potlucks, the church would be made a fellowshipping community of faith. It is the hope of the Christian church that as we partake of this sacrament of which Jesus Christ is Lord and Holy that the church would be made one. Do you understand that it is easy to do things because that's what we do without thought? If I was to go from person to person and ask, why do we participate in this sacrament? Why do we take 15 minutes out of the precious hour and 45 minutes that we have together on a Sunday to do this? Why is it that we spend this time? I I don't know what you would say, but I hope that you would understand maybe a little better today that what Jesus does through this sacrament is not magic, but he is aligning us again with that which matters to him. When they approached him, they asked us, what does all the law and the prophets hang on? He said, you must love the Lord your God with everything in you and your neighbor as yourself. There is no such thing as only loving God without a direct bearing on my brothers and my sisters. The hope of communion is that we would become in faith all of what God has destined us to be. But there are challenges. There are challenges as they were for the Corinthians. There are threats to that kind of communion as they are this morning as I preach. Many of the Christians in Corinth were pagans before their conversion and they participated in cultic festivals. These festivals included meals as a a high point in their celebration. These meals were always in honor of a deity of some kind. And in the cosmopolitan city of Corinth, uh, comprising uh, retired army, Roman army officials and citizens, comprising Greeks and Jews and many other tribes from the Middle East, such festivals were common. See, Corinth itself was a religious city that incorporated Greek gods and goddesses into their worship. Several pagan temples and shrines honoring various deities such as Apollo, Asclepius, god of physical and emotional health, and Hera Argeia, a goddess of marriage and sexual life. Temples honoring Aphrodite and Venus, the Greek and Roman goddesses of love, were present within the Corinthian community. Paul, aware of all this history, of all this culture, of all this religion that is there, challenges the Corinthian church to recognize that ultimately all of life must bring glory to the one true and living God. And that in fact the threat to communion for them was that they would worship or eat in honor of all these other gods. I think that for us today, one of the threats to participating in the Lord's Supper in a transforming and strength and faith strengthening way is that we must also ask ourselves the questions, which gods do we live to celebrate? Which gods stand in the way of the true living God? 
Which things in our life beckons our priority, demands our time, takes place, takes priority over the one true living God? For if there is anything that threatens true communion with God, it is what is said in the Old Testament, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments. You must have no other God but the one true and living God. Listen, Paul says uh, later in this chapter, it's not wrong to go to an unbeliever's home and enjoy a meal with them. I'm so glad he said that. You know, because sometimes, you know, people just cook meals that I can cook and I love eating. But I love being in fellowship with people. I like being in fellowship with whoever they may be. Paul says there's nothing wrong with doing that. But if someone tells you that the food you are eating is in honor of another God, do not do that for your sake and for that person's sake. Why? Because all of life... All of what you do, when you eat, when you drink, when you work, when you think, when you play, must be done unto the glory of the one true God. The question for the church when we come to the table is to examine our hearts and say, are there other things that have taken the place of the one true God in my life? For if there's something that threatens true communion with Him, it is when we have placed... An inordinate affection upon other things. You see, the threat in the Corinthian church is the threat of many gods versus the one true God, but it is also the threat of the God of I, the God that places me and the primacy of my needs above everyone else. You know, I find it very interesting as I reached this particular, research this particular uh, chapter and, and read up, uh, it, is, it is implied in the text that uh, wealthier Christians were hosting these meals. And I think Jeff alluded to this last week that, um, that uh, you know, the, the, the communion meal was, was a part of a bigger meal. It's not like they had this, you know, by itself with little cups and, and small pieces of wafer. It was a part of an actual meal, right? And, and, and sometimes the wealthier people in the Corinthian community hosted these meals. They had these meals. And what that meant is immediately some people were excluded from these meals. People who weren't wealthy were immediately excluded. And it is said that in the Corinthian community, the way they partook brought judgment on themselves, primarily because, at least in my estimate as I reflected on this, because they, though they, they, they partook in the Lord's Supper, they forgot who is the one hosting it. And secondly, they did it without consideration of their brother's who were to participate along with them. You know what the scripture says? Some of them ate without waiting for their brothers. What does it mean for you and me to wait? I think it means this. I think it means that when we participate, yes, we participate by our personal volition, our personal decision, but we do not participate as individuals. We wait for one another to participate together because we recognize that the Lord's Supper is reconstituting, building up His body. And so I need my brothers and sisters to participate well in the sacrament. To wait means that I do not put my primary needs above others. To be realigned with this Lord's Supper means that 
that I do not act independently without consideration for those around me, that I understand my actions have implications. To wait on my brother means that I recognize their worth before God and that they too are welcome to this table. To wait on my brother means to consider the condition and the state and the need of others around me. To wait on my brother means that we are a church that recognizes it is not primarily just about me. Do you know that in the early church, they adopted the practice of offering one another peace in the name of Christ? Do you know where they used that particular offering? Right before the Lord's Supper. It was a way of recognizing exactly what Paul is saying. It is one thing to love God, but it also means to love one another. Dare I say to us this morning that there is no perfect church. The reason is because you and I are in it. But can I tell you that Christ has given us all the resources we need to be His church, to live through tensions, to live through conflict, to seek forgiveness, to seek reconciliation, to seek redemption. Let let, let me say to you, you and I grow at the point at which we confront that brokenness in us. You and I grow as Christians at the point in which we learn to value one another so much that even if we do not agree, we will work things out because that is what Christ desires of His body. Can I say this to you? Do not leave a church because you can't get along with somebody. Please, not unless uh, unless until you have done all you could to reconcile and to make things right. That for us as a community of faith, the threat to communion is the many gods may be present in our culture. And maybe the way in which culture says it's okay to look out for only me. But finally, the way of communion is the way of confession and reconciliation. The way of communion is what is said in verse 28. Let a man and a woman, a child, examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. I think the way of entering into this life, the way of living into this life, is that each and every Christian are to take the time in their personal lives on a regular basis to examine and discern the nature of of their relationship with God and the nature of their relationship with their fellow brothers in Christ. Our Catholic brothers in their tradition has as a part of preparation for Holy Communion confession. I think there is something to be said for that. But let me push that a little further and say that what we most, when we most resemble the body of Christ is when we are the kind of community 
that seeks to reconcile with one another. The invitation this morning is that not only when we participate here that we would be focused on confession and reconciliation, but that in every part of our daily walk with God, we would make time for such contemplation. The Scripture says, examine yourselves. For it is easily to, easy to be deceived, and it is easy to deceive others. But examine yourself. Think about the priority of Christ in your life. Think about the importance of the decision you have made to follow Him. Does your life line up with who He has called and said you are? Are you living in such a way as to honor Him? Are there things in our lives that we must confess and say, Father, this is destructive to all the plans that you have for me. This is not what you want for my life. And second, but not less important, Father, is there any relationship in my life that you are pointing out needs your grace and your mercy. I think our lives ought to be marked more often by self-examination. And so as we now enter into this time of the Lord's Supper, I invite such examination. I am convinced that we can talk church, preach church, that in some ways it's kind of like treating the Lord's Supper as simply a cognitive exercise and by which we think about things. But there's something to be said for actually physically engaging, don't you think, with actually taking things in your hand. I, I think that's the gift of sacrament. It says, let's take it from here to here to here. You know, let, let, let's actually engage our faith. And, and, I, and, I, and I think this morning, I, I want us to do that. I want us in the next few moments to honestly examine our hearts. And if there is anything in us to offer that as a prayer of confession to Jesus Christ. We're not going to rush this time. I, I, I really am this morning cognizant of what the time is, but we're not going to rush this time because I, I, I think we, we have a moment of grace today as a community of faith to not only make sure that this relationship with God is right, but to actually ask ourselves, where is God pointing out that, that we need to respond Where's grace needed? Where's forgiveness needed? Where's reconciliation needed? Listen, folks, you know, I, I've been in church now for quite a number of years. Well, for all of my life, really, but as a pastor for quite a number of years. And I have seen, you know, the ups and downs of church life. I have seen people get hurt. Have you? Does it not break our hearts? You know, there's a part of me that realized the older I get, and I'm still young, but the older I get, is that sometimes, you know, even the good intentions of a pastor can't spare everyone from, from pain. Just like a parent can't spare their kids from pain. You know, part of me has grown up to recognize that sometimes it's difficult to be a part of a community of faith. Sometimes it's challenging. But folks, we have a hope in Jesus Christ. 
We have a Savior that taught us how to deal with brokenness. We have a Savior who showed us how, what is the way of holiness. We have a, a Savior who showed us what is the way of reconciliation. We have a Savior that has given us what we need as a church. Do you believe that? All that has been given to us has been given for our edification so that we would be all He wants us to be. And I ask you today, if there is anyone in your life, anyone you can think of right now that's coming to mind, any person that God is laying on your heart, that you must be obedient and attentive to what He is saying. I'm going to pray. Some of us will have to be obedient beyond this moment. In fact, that's not right to say all of us. But some of us may have to pick up a phone. Some of us may have to go for a visit. Some of us may have to take a risk. My sense is is that not everyone is living with tremendous conflict here this morning, but there might be some of us who have buried hurt so deep down within us that it really has, has, has caused has caused so much pain, so much distance that we cannot participate in this life fully because it holds us back. You know, over the years I've met people and it shocked me. I've met people who have not let go of things that have happened years and years and years and years ago. And here the grace of God, the church, is the place where such victory is won, not in our own strength, but because of Jesus Christ. Will you bow your heads with me? The psalmist says to search our hearts, O God, Know our thoughts. See if there's any offensive ways in us and lead us in your ways. And so now, Holy Spirit, I ask that in these few moments of quiet, The grace of God would be so overwhelming, so true for each and every one of us that we would experience the joy of communion with God. That we would know that Jesus is present here with us. That in fact, when you look upon us, you look at us with great joy, with great longing. I pray too that if there be any amongst us that needs to reconcile with a brother and sister in this community of faith, that they would both have the conviction and the courage to do so. I do not present, Father, that I know what is in the heart of anyone, but I know that you do. I pray that if there is a a family here where there is discord between husband and wife, that you would bring about your grace and your conviction Uh, so that there would be reconciliation in that family, in that marriage. I pray that if there is discord between 
children and parents that by your grace you would bring that healing and that restoration. I pray that if there's tension in, in, in families and extended families, uh, with colleagues, with people around us, uh, I pray that there would be by your Spirit the willingness to seek that which only comes as we know we have been forgiven by you. And now, Father, in the silence of this moment, may your Spirit prepare our hearts to participate in this meal with great hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Just over these next few moments, I ask that you take the time to examine and discern what God is saying to you.